0: Welcome to the fourth edition of News of the Church. It's the 10th of December in 2023, and it's the second Sunday of Advent. Some time ago, I saw a movie called News of the World, in which some years after the Civil War, a former Confederate officer is eking out a living going around reading various newspaper stories from all over the place to people who pay a dime ahead. In uh, today's money that'd be about two fifty. dollars The idea caught my imagination and so here I am. I'm a gazetteer. So let's get this audio gazette going. I'm happy to receive the bulletin from Wonderful monastery of Saint Madeleine in France and Le Barreau. Uh They have, uh, oh, it's jam packed. And I have the latest number in my hands here Les Amis du Monastère. It's number 188 under date of 21 November 2023. And there are some interesting ast- uh, articles in it. One of them has to do with the, an, an account from the abbot about how he and some monks went to visit the great monastery on Mount Athos. And uh, then they have their own chronicle here, too. Since I'm uh, in solidarity with them as chroniclers, I'll give you some a little bit of the action at the monastery. This is just a few items here. I just want to get you riled up. Uh, from their own chronicle, Wednesday, August second, Dom Jean Bernard Marie, Abbot of the of Saint Joseph de Clairval, that's at Flavigny. They have forty monks there. Explains to us that his abbey must expand, and has sent eleven monks to refound Solignac, an ancient Benedictine house. Well, that's very good. You know, this Benedictine life—it's growing back up all over. Friday. August 25th, Father Cyril and Brother Gabriel demonstrate the profitability of our vegetable garden, producer of tomatoes, eggplants, beans, cucumbers, zucchini, squash, etc. Monday, September 4th, Father Abbot returns with Brother Sébastien from Mont des Alouettes, where he celebrated a solemn mass in front of 600 people in memory of the martyrs of Vendée immortalized by a memorial chapel initiated in 1823 by the Duchess of Angoulême, the daughter of Louis the 16th. Thursday, September 7th, the harvest will be spread over a month and new use of a harvesting machine for some grape varieties. Remember that these are the monks who make uh, wine from the vineyards that belonged to the Avignon popes. And you can get it, and um, you can get it at a discount with a code that I have. I have an affiliate with them. You can use Father Z10 at checkout with them and get 10% off. Here's something else from their newsletter. In a section called Tole Lege, Take and Read, you might remember this is what Augustine heard when he picked up the scriptures for the first time and and began to read. Uh, the title here, Simply totally Leger, take and read. Uh, in 1897, a 24-year-old Carmelite died in Lisieux, Thérèse Martin, in religion, Sister Thérèse of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. At a time when the teaching of Dom Chotard and Dom Marmion was spreading rapidly, see the last two letters to friends, Two stars of exceptional grandeur appeared in the sky of the church: Therese of Lisieux and Charles de foucault They enthused the Catholic world, testifying to the attractive and irresistible force that an extremely intense interior life can give to beings who have separated themselves from the world. In eighteen ninety-seven, a twenty-four-year-old Carmelite died in Lisieux, Therese Martin. In religion, Sister Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face, she leaves autobiographical writings written out of obedience. Carmel published them the following year under the title Story of a Soul. We are timidly printing 2,000 copies, wondering if it will be possible to sell them. Uh, They have their own publishing concern um, there at, at Le Barreau. As a matter of fact, I know that they have republished the beautiful um life of little St Placid, which is a a favorite of mine. I will get to that one one day now, going on uh from the newsletter. They are wondering if they can sell two thousand copies by eighteen ninety nine six thousand books had already been sold. The welcome is warm, but it is not yet a triumph. Influential ecclesiastics express reservations. Against a quote, rosewater holiness which will pass quickly. Close quote. These reluctances will not carry much weight in the face of the tremendous popular momentum which is asserting itself. This becomes irresistible with the war. Anxiety pushes us to prayer. And little Sister Therese offers a spiritual path that charms all little ones. Mothers, sisters, and wives no longer hesitate to speak to god every day in the simple carmelite way in the empty houses where people tremble for the men who have gone to the front they invoke her with fervor they send her image to the soldiers in 1915 1 million copies of the autobiography autobiography had already been distributed sometimes in an abridged version from the trenches more than 5,000 testimonies of miraculous protection poured in. After the war, the hurricane of glory that it caused reached every corner of the world. We find her image even in the highest valleys of Tibet or among the Eskimos of the north. Pius XI canonized her in 1925 and soon proclaimed her patroness of the missions with St. Francis Xavier. Millions of souls benefit from its beneficial influence. Where does such enthusiasm come from among Christian people? First, because her life is very simple and can therefore serve as a model for everyone. A young, natural girl evokes the sunny years of her childhood, but also the hard trials she went through. She affirms with a charming, youthful spirit a desire for total and exclusive love of God. Her concern for perfection is reflected in all the small acts of her life. Linen keeper and doorkeeper, uh, refectory worker, sacristan, she puts a heroic love of God into everything. This is enough to make it an admirable model. Another deeper reason explains Thérèse's spiritual influence. Her simple method of prayer, For me, prayer is an outburst of the heart, it is a simple look towards the sky. It is a cry of recognition and love in the midst of trial as well as in the midst of joy. Finally, it is something great and supernatural which expands my soul and unites me to Jesus." Quote. Therese feels too small to climb the difficult staircase of perfection. She seeks a lift that will remedy her impotence and finds it in a keen feeling of humility combined with a confidence carried to the point of audacity in the goodness of her Heavenly Father. We understand the considerable interest of this method of brief and frequent conversation with God for all those whom their tyrannical work schedules or the surrounding commotion deprive of the possibility of prayer. Without interrupting their secular occupations, they shoot arrows of love towards God and transform their smallest actions into love, like the rose petals that children throw in front of the Blessed Sacrament during processions. Now, quote, the smallest movement of pure love is more useful to the Church than all other works put together, close quote. And that's from St. John of the Cross. Thus, that, Id- that item about Thérèse, St. Thérèse, a great favorite of mine, to whom I owe a great deal, from Les Amis du Monastère, number 188. <laughs> uh, sticking with monasticism for a little bit, um, I get another newsletter here from the Monastère Benoit. This is in the diocese. Uh, where Bishop Dominique Gray is of you know, uh Toulon, Fréjou Toulon. And it is a matter there was some controversy there some time ago when um the uh their prior um came to be ordained without the permission of the bishop and it created a bit of a stir. Anyway they they're rebuilding this structure, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, let's see, there's another thing here. I think it goes back to the 12th century, and they're rebuilding it and refurbishing, which is a a wonderful thing. Just like all monasteries, they got a little news here. They had a a Marian procession, and several hundred people showed up, and um, then they're visiting other monasteries. They seem to do this a lot. And uh, their monastery garden, yes, what would a monastic letter be without the report on the garden? Apparently, as it says here, um, ah, there, yes. In the monastery garden this year's newly hatched birds have grown up and being duly sold. It was a good season, particularly for the chickens and turkeys. Our pigeons have also begun successfully to breed. Uh, Preparations for the beginning of work on the new greenhouse meant a rather rapid harvest of the vegetables planted in that ground. But as the brethren discovered, there are many ways to eat a wheelbarrow load of carrots. Um, The principal thing that I wanted to read here is from their prior, uh, Dom Alcuin, Alcuin Reed. who's was a famous liturgical scholar. When confronted with demons, they found impossible to cast out. Our Lord taught his disciples that this kind cannot be driven out by anything other than prayer and fasting. We may not ourselves be face to face with the with instances of demonic possession or obsession, but the troubled church and world in which we live confronts us with many realities with which we ourselves cannot deal from doctrinal obfuscation on the part of some in the hierarchy, to their persecution of all things liturgical perceived as old, the cancerous relativism and secularism that invades the church from the world that propagates it, and the ongoing eruption of violence and war nationally and internationally, despite the decades of social and diplomatic progress of which we boast. We are powerless, There is practically nothing we can do in the face of these realities. This kind cannot be driven out by anything other than prayer and fasting. Let us learn anew from these words. The fact is that we have supernatural weapons with which to fight the evils that assail us. Let us wield them with the ever greater force and fervor this Advent, ever confident in their power and protection. I belong to the Sodality of the Blessed Sacrament at Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Maiden Lane in London. And as uh, reminds me I should probably pay my dues. Uh, in any event, they also send out a newsletter. And I'm looking at newsletter number 64 for October and November 2023. And in it, there's a October homily from Jeremy Cannon Trude. Who is a priest of the Diocese of Westminster, ordained in 2001. He is a parish priest at St. Aloysius in Summerstown, and he is also the chancellor for the diocese and was installed as a canon, I'm assuming of the Cathedral of Westminster, in October of this year. And this is included in the in the letter um, that went out to the members of the Sodality. Now, I'll uh, read this to you. It's about canon law, and it has to do with the Blessed Sacrament. It's a little longer uh, than some of the things I read, but it's very instructive. So, beginning. Canon 1752, the final canon in the 1983 Code of Canon Law, concludes, Canonical equality is to be observed, and the salvation of souls, which must always be The supreme law in the church is to be kept before one's eyes. With this simple mantra, the salvation of souls, the code itself justifies its place in the spiritual hierarchy. It rests on its spiritual laurels and excuses everything that has gone before. Who could possibly question the spirituality of canon law after such an emphatic endorsement by the code itself? And yet... When I was first asked to go and study canon law, one of my oldest friends, a brother priest, phoned me up to congratulate me and said he thought I was well suited to the task and would do very well as a canon lawyer. When I asked why he thought this, he said simply, Well, you have always been good with petty acts of malice. Clearly for him, canon law and spirituality are two very different things, and the concept of the spirituality of canon law was not something he had ever continenced. As a canon lawyer, I cannot help but turn to the Code of Canon Law. Thus, in preparation for today, I naturally turned to the 62 canons within the Code the treat of the Most Holy Eucharist, Canons 897 to 958. The first of these canons summarizes all that will come after. It reads The most august sacrament is the most holy Eucharist, is which Christ the Lord Himself is contained, offered, and received, and by which the Church continually lives and grows. The Eucharistic sacrifice, the memorial of the death and resurrection of the Lord, in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated, and through the ages is the summit and source of all worship and Christian life which signifies and affects the unity of the people of God and brings about the building up of the body of Christ. Indeed, the other sacraments and all the ecclesiastical works of the Apostolate are closely connected with the Most Holy Eucharist and ordered to it. Thus the Code, and through it the Church, is emphasizing continuity with the past, The Holy Eucharist is unchanged and unchangeable. It reinforces and restates the dogmas and authoritative teachings of the past, the real presence of the Lord in the Holy Eucharist, the sacrificial nature of the Mass. The Church is committing itself afresh to the understanding of the Holy Eucharist as laid down by sacred scripture, ecumenical councils, and the magisterium of the Church, what we call the deposit of faith at the same time the code is also broadening our understanding of the eucharist with the inclusion of themes taken from the second vatican council in particular the code seeks to include our understanding of eucharist as meal having a celebratory as well as memorial character it also wants us to explore and appreciate the ecclesial dimensions of the eucharist it wants us to recognize the eucharist as the source and sign of the unity of the body of christ as well as the source and summit of the church's life and worship, its nourishment, and its growth. It is the action of the whole of the people of God participating in the sanctifying function of the church and reflecting its hierarchical structure through diverse and distinct ministries. Thus, the code is explicit in our understanding that the Holy Eucharist, as the most august sacrament, is Christ himself, his real body, his real blood, contained, offered, and received, and that by means of this Eucharist, the Church continually lives and grows. We are also to understand the Eucharistic sacrifice as both the memorial of the death and the resurrection of the Lord, that through the Eucharistic sacrifice, the sacrifice of the cross is forever perpetuated, and that this sacrifice is the source and summit of all worship and Christian life. Through the Eucharist the unity of God's people is signified and brought about, and the building up of the body of Christ is perfected. The other sacraments and all other ecclesiastical works of the Apostolate are bound up and directed to the blessed Eucharist because it contains the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ Himself, our Pasch. Having offered such a concise summary of the confluence of traditional theology and the teachings of Vatican II to our understanding of the Holy Eucharist, the second of the canons anticipates more specific juridical norms which appear elsewhere in the canons with its assertion of several exhortations to the faithful and to pastors of souls. The next canon, Canon 898, reads, The Christian faithful are to hold the Most Holy Eucharist in highest honor, taking an active part in the celebration of of the most august sacrifice, receiving the sacrament most devoutly and frequently, and worshiping it with the highest adoration. In explaining the doctrine about this sacrament, pastors of souls are to teach the faithful diligently about this obligation. Stepping out for a moment, I really wonder... How much that canon the well, canon is probably more observed in the breach than the, than the observance uh, going on. Having exhorted the faithful on the need to receive the sacrament frequently and devoutly, 12 canons then explain how the baptized should do this, and then a further 11 canons explain how the baptized should reverence the sacrament with the greatest devotion. In particular, these canons teach that Every baptized Catholic, not prohibited by law, can and must be admitted to Holy Communion. The children can be admitted once they have sufficient knowledge and have been carefully prepared so that they understand, according to their capacity, the mystery of Christ and receive with faith and with devotion. Yeah, there's another one. I wonder how well that's going these days we are reminded that it is the duty primarily of parents as well as pastors of the church to ensure that children are properly prepared to receive, the holy, receive holy communion and to do so as soon as possible after they have reached the age of reason those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of a penalty and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Of course, not every baptized Catholic should automatically present themselves for communion. A person is... Oh, by the way, I'm actually correcting typos along the way as I read. Um, so you know, forgive me if it sounds a little odd once in a while, or if I hesitate. A person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate Mass or receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession, unless there is a grave reason, and then they should first make an act of perfect contrition. This is the canon which in the past was used to keep publicans, moneylenders, prostitutes, and immodestly dressed women from communion, but it is more frequently used against Catholic politicians these days. And rightly so, if they support things that are wrong. Wrong. <clears throat> going on although the faithful should receive holy communion frequently it should not become an end in itself the faithful should not receive holy communion more than twice a day and the second time only if they participate in a eucharistic celebration actually i think it, i think it's only if they participated mass it is highly recommended that the faithful receive Holy Communion during the Eucharistic celebration itself See, it is using Eucharistic celebration um, equivocally with mass it would be easier it be you know, Eucharistic celebration could be exposition Eucharistic celebration could be bringing communion to the sick which isn't mass it is highly recommended that the faithful receive Holy Communion during the Eucharistic celebration itself mass and there must be a just cause if it is to be administered outside of such a celebration and then the proper liturgical rite must be observed the baptized are reminded of the rules on fasting and the importance of receiving holy communion at least once a year preferably in the easter season finally this section outlines the importance of receiving holy communion as viaticum in danger of death and that we should be zealous and vigilant not to delay too long before receiving it in these circumstances, the faithful can receive Holy Communion in any Catholic rite, that which the Society of Pious uh, St. Pius X celebrates as a Catholic rite. I digress. To ensure that the Holy Eucharist is reverenced with the greatest devotion, the Code demands that the Blessed Sacrament must be reserved in cathedrals in every parish church and in churches and oratories of religious institutes and societies of apostolic life. It may be reserved in other churches, oratories, and chapels with the permission of the local ordinary. No one is permitted to keep the Eucharist on one's person or to carry it around unless pastoral necessity urges it, to take communion to the sick and housebound, for example. In religious houses, the sacrament should be reserved in the principal church or chapel and should not be reserved in another oratory. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of typos here. I'm correcting on the fly. This next sentence begins, it sacrament should be given a place of providence. The sacrament should be given a place of prominence and honor and not be hidden away in some forgotten corner. Churches where the sacrament is reserved should be open for at least some hours every day to allow the faithful to pray before the Blessed Sacrament, and should not be reserved in multiple tabernacles in the same church. The place where the sacrament is reserved is important, and should be distinguished, conspicuous, beautifully decorated, and suitable for prayer. I can see that this canon was fully appreciated and followed when this church was reordered. We're talking about uh, the church there in Maiden Lane, which is truly beautiful. It's such, a, it's such a spectacular job that they did there. Hosts should also be kept in a pyx, or a small vessel, and a special lamp which indicates and honors the presence of Christ is to shine continuously before the tabernacle. Actually, the real sign of the presence of the Eucharist is a veil, not a light exposition of the blessed sacrament is allowed in all places where reservation is permitted but is not allowed during the celebration of mass (laughs) except in the case of mass quorum sanctissimo in the old rite during forty hours devotion dear father The canon's treat of who can and who cannot expose the Blessed Sacrament. It encourages an annual solemn exposition of the Blessed Sacrament to be held over an appropriate period of time so that the local community more profoundly meditates on and adores the Eucharistic mystery. Now, that was a reference to the 40 Hours Devotion. It also encourages processions through the public streets as a public witness of veneration toward the Most Holy Eucharist. I am Sure, all these canons are faithfully followed here at Corpus Christi. Not only are they faithfully uh, followed, but uh, the dear readers of the blog, uh, some years ago you participated in a project to help uh, purchase a processional canopy for this very church, Corpus Christi in Maiden Lane in London. It's beautiful, too. I've seen the photos when they go out and around Covent Garden and so forth with the Blessed Sacrament. It's lovely. Twelve canons then deal with the minister of Most Holy Communion. Only a valid ordained priest can confect the Eucharist. A priest may concelebrate, but they do not have to concelebrate. Oh boy, that was practically shoved down our throats um, at a certain point before they, they force priests to concelebrate. That's what they're doing in St. Peter's Basilica right now. Uh, I digress. They are encouraged to celebrate Mass every day, but should not celebrate more than once a day unless local conditions suggest otherwise. Um, There are exceptions. Uh, You can celebrate three times on uh, uh, all souls, and you can celebrate three times on Christmas. And at Christmas you can can keep all three stipends. You can only keep one stipend on, on all souls. Back to this. Let's see here. Uh, In this diocese, priests may celebrate twice a day and three times on Sundays and days of obligation. That's, of course, because of the shortage of priests. They need to be able to cover, cover Masses. So they can binate and even trinate if they need to, the technical terms for saying Mass twice or thrice. Priests should prepare properly and prayerfully before saying Mass and should offer thanks to God. Afterwards, You know, this is one of the reasons why you shouldn't be, why, why sacristies should be quiet places and people shouldn't be coming up to the priest, you know, five minutes before mass is supposed to start and asking them to hear a confession or want to chat or ask a question. And even afterwards, give them a little room to, for, for, um uh, uh, an act of thanksgiving. Uh, going uh, going on, that's why we should not celebrate multiple times every day. Every Mass requires proper preparation, especially spiritual preparation. A further seven canons deal with the rites and ceremonies of the celebration, and three more the time and place for such celebrations. The remaining 14 canons deal with the offerings given for the celebration of Mass, and to my mind would be better off not included within the section on sacraments, but within the section on temporal goods of the church. Well, that's one way to approach it. The Code of Canon Law is also supplemented by the rubrics and the prenotanda contained within the liturgical books of the church, as well as certain directories and instructions of the church, which, whilst not being part of the code, have the same authority as the code. That's interesting, yeah. That's because particular particular liturgical laws, yeah. All right, the purpose of all these canons and regulations is not to make life difficult, they are there, <clears throat> yeah. They are too there to help each, you no, know, they are there to help each and every one of us to fully understand, you no, know, sort of fully understand. Let me just back up here. The purpose of all these canons and regulations is not to make life difficult. They are there to help each and every one of us fully understand the great mystery contained within the Holy Eucharist, and bring us all to a faithful, devout, and frequent reception of Holy Communion, so that this august sacrament truly becomes the very source and summit of our being the salvation of souls yes petty acts of malice no who could think otherwise who could think otherwise well i think we look around in the church today and I, there are several people who do think otherwise but i digress that was that was helpful um, they need a they need a proofreader but um, god bless them Well, I'm going to keep the um, identity or the source of this uh, secret for a moment and uh, tell you after I'm done. Uh, again, it's a, it's a newsletter dated uh, 27 November 2023. Dear friends and benefactors, the world views man as an economic animal driven only by calculations of what is beneficial to himself. Such people would see religion in the same light, a self-help tool to give some order or a sense of security. Karl Marx, among others, bases his view of history upon this assumption, but this is not the reality. The end of man is the supernatural economy, the life of God in heaven and on earth. The Catholic heart naturally seeks the triumph of Christ the King. Our nature is simply inclined that way the human soul is made for truth as the compass needle seeks the north the conscience of man leaves him uneasy if he wanders off course man is ever restless in error and this fact disposes him to the reception of the gospel in the world there is much opposition to the work of the church today and yet there is a desire for redemption Without doubt, the more we are seeing a sense of the failure of the modern revolts against God, the more these failures will provide for a fertile ground for God's grace. But how far we are from such a global acknowledgement of Almighty God and His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentiles have raged and the people have devised vain things. We wonder what we can do to promote the glory of God and His Son, apart from whom there is no salvation. We are familiar with the thoughts of very good authorities, such as Louis Vuillot. We perish perhaps more in reason of the truths that good men do not have the courage to utter than from the errors multiplied by evil men. So is everyone meant to be a David against the global Goliath? Obviously not. David was God's anointed and God's appointed. Besides, the self-anointed and self-appointed David does not give the greatest glory to God, who is the origin of all victory. Neither does he understand, like St. Peter before the Passion, that the price of the redemption of souls is the profound humility of Calvary. And yet, we are entrusted with the most noble mission, promoting the external glory of God. The Catholic sacraments have imprinted characters of Christ upon the soul. These characters are deputations by the Church to the public worship of God. They are capabilities to glorify Him. So we can't simply be a passive audience to Heaven's work. Ad Majorem dei gloriam. This begs the question, what is the greater good to which we must strive? It is a difficult question at first sight, but if we follow firm principles, the answer becomes quite clear. St. Thomas Aquinas lays out the following principles as the basis for our judgment. Principle 1. We must not disdain what is most perfect. This could be the most perfect way of life, such as consecrated life, or it could be a more perfect practice or choice in life. The temptation of weak souls is to sour the opinion of others concerning what is higher when they cannot accomplish it themselves. Principle 2. Avoiding disdain is not enough. There must be a positive love of what is better. If we read through the rules on thinking with the church by St. Ignatius, we will find clear examples of this. He speaks in terms of praise for the sacraments, evangelical vows, and all which is praiseworthy. Principle 3. The obligation to love what is better is not the same as the obligation to do what is better. Some explanation is needed. No one is obliged to do what they are not bound to do by their duty of state and by the laws of the church or any legitimate lawgiver to whom one is bound. St. Thomas would say, that no, no one is obliged to do what is undetermined. There are so many things that could be done instead of what we are doing at present, some of which are inherently better than what we are doing at present. For example, if a father of a family has obligations to family and career, then he is in no way obliged to practices which are of greater perfection but would conflict with his duty we don't yet understand what it means to love what is better. Here it is necessary to rid ourselves of sentimentality. Love is not mere sentiment. Sentiment is an affection without great desire. Love is in the will and therefore drives action. If we have merely a sentimental affection for what is greater, we will not actually do what is greater given the clear opportunity. If we truly love, We will do the greater good when given the clear opportunity. So, even though our principle states that we are not obliged to do what is not clearly determined for us, it may happen that some opportunity for extra service or pious action comes our way. Let us strive to do that extra thing, so long as it is in line with our duty of state and the true inspirations of the Holy Ghost. We do not want to reject the graces of God. Besides, the best advice and our own experience shows that the works of supererogation, that is, those that are beyond mere duty, are necessary at times to avoid regression on the path to heaven. In the concrete of all works which deserve our extra efforts, those concerning the foundation and continued growth of the Church rank first. The Church is a supernatural society which works for the greatest glory of God and good of souls. As circumstances allow and needs dictate, I encourage you to assist the work of the schools, the life of the parishes, and the additional apostolates, like retreats and pilgrimages. This example of generosity will not be lost on the young. Charity begets charity. Be assured of the prayers. Of the seminary for you this Advent in the hearts of Jesus and Mary, Father Michael Goldade. And Father Michael Goldade is at St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary, which is in Dilwyn, Virginia, and it is the seminary of the Society of St. Pius X. This was in a Friends and Benefactors uh, fundraising letter. The Wanderer is a paper newspaper, and it is in volume 156. It's been around for 156 years. And this is number 48 of that volume for 30 November 2023. And I'm looking well into it on page 5B where we read Priest Delivers Twins Outside Cathedral. Yakima A young priest recently helped a distressed homeless woman bring two young lives into the world. He shared the remarkable story with Catholic Extension and now is wondering what God was trying to tell him through the extraordinary experience. Father Jesus Mariscal is the parochial vicar at St. Paul Cathedral in Yakima. He stepped out of the rectory in September for what he thought would be a quick trip to buy doughnuts for a marriage preparation meeting with an engaged couple. As he walked past the statue of Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, located on the cathedral grounds, he noticed a homeless woman in distress standing near it. She was screaming frantically, I need help! I'm having a baby! I wonder if that's why he noticed her. <laughs> Mariscal couldn't believe it at first, but he looked closely and saw blood at her feet. She cried out, I'm having it now, I'm having it now. He called 911 and helped the woman lie down. He put his phone on the speaker on speaker and placed it on the ground so he could follow the 911 operator's instructions. Within seconds, the woman gave birth to a baby boy. Mariscal handed the crying boy to the woman. I'm having another, she shouted to the shocked priest. Mariscal helped deliver the second boy. He told the 911 operator the child was still in the amniotic sac, the protective membrane that surrounds a child in the womb. Mariscal saw the baby moving inside it. The 911 operator told him to break it open. This proved more difficult than expected. With precious time evaporating and no tools at his disposal, The priest was finally able to burst the sack with his hands, only to find that the tiny infant wasn't breathing. The umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. The operator told Mariscal to lay the child on his side and gently tap him on the back. After a few terrifying moments, the baby started to cry, announcing his arrival into the world. Mariscal placed the second child in the woman's lone free arm. The morning air was chilly, so he ran inside to get towels. Finally, the paramedics arrived. Mariscal texted the couple he was supposed to meet for the marriage preparation. "'I'm sorry I'm late for our appointment. I was just helping a lady deliver twins,' he wrote. Assuming it was a joke to excuse his tardiness, they responded, "'Lol, father, you don't have to lie.' The woman and twin boys were taken to the hospital. The babies were born prematurely at 30 weeks. The priest has visited them in the hospital, and they are doing well. He does not know the exact nature of the mother's situation in life. She left the hospital a few hours after being admitted, and as far as anyone knows, she has not returned. It's a beautiful story on one side, but heartbreaking on the other, said the priest, whose own beloved mother passed away earlier in the year. Thus, from The Wanderer of November 30. Here's another uh, article uh, in the same number of The the Wanderer as the the previous. Calls to canonize sacristan slain by jihadist in Spain by Nicolas de Cardenas The Diocese of Cadiz and Cueta in southern Spain has begun to receive requests from Catholics asking the diocese to promote the canonization process of Diego Valencia, the sacristan who was murdered by a Muslim extremist last January. Valencia was fatally wounded on January 25th after being struck with a machete wielded by Yassin Kainya, a Moroccan national the jihadist entered the church of our lady of la palma in al and proceeded to strike statues candles and other objects with the machete valencia 65 who had been serving as chaplain for 16 years confronted the assailant who was wearing a black jellaba typical moroccan dress after being struck by kanya with that with what one witness called a large blue machete and others described as a knife or a kind of katana, a curved Japanese sword, the sacristan fled outside the church, where the jihadists caught up with him, finishing him off with his long blade. According to the association Enraizados en Cristo y la Sociedad, rooted in Christ and Society, which has launched the effort to start the canonization process, the pastor of the church, Father Juan José Marina, has already asked the Bishop of Cadiz and Queta, Rafael Zorzona, to begin the process to open the diocesan phase of the canonization process. The deceased sacristan was much loved in the parish and in the city for his dedication and affability with everyone. The diocese related, I wish that all of the all of the sacristans in the city of Rome would uh, be remembered for their dedication, and affability. I know one particular sacristan who is, but the rest of them? The Enraizados Association emphasized in a statement on its website that his murder ended his life. We will not allow time to end his memory and his extraordinary act of courage, undoubtedly impelled by the Holy Spirit. According to the judicial investigation, on the afternoon of January 25th, Kanya attacked two churches in Algeciras, motivated by religious hatred. He He first went to a church of the Savior, where he wounded Silesian Father Antonio Rodriguez, who survived the attack, although he died months later due to an illness that was diagnosed after the attack. Next, he went to Our Lady of La Palma parish, where he murdered Valencia. The church's pastor, providentially, was not present because he was doing other pastoral work at the time. When the attack occurred, the bishop of Cadiz Coeta, Rafael Zurzora, was in town on a pastoral visit close by, and although he was not in danger, he was able to quickly arrive at the scene afterward. Both Lucena and Valencia have been posthumously recognized with the Pro Ecclesia Gadiense et Septense, For the Church of Cadiz and Sueta, Kuwaita, Sueta. That's an uh, that's an alert. I have to go watch a hockey game. Um, They have been uh, recognized with this award, uh, a, a medal awarded by the diocese. I I read this because just the other day I saw a video from the Moroccan side of the narrow strait between Spain and Morocco, right there across from Kuwaita, Sueta, and it showed hundreds, thousands of young men streaming toward the shore where they were to be put in boats and taken over to Spain. I have quite a stack of things to read here, but well, let's not make this too long. If you happen to find any good bits, you could send them along to me. My email is frz at wdtprs.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango papa romeo sierra.com. God bless you all. Please pray for me, as I will for you.